Section 11 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Scotland, Exile and Restoration, Part 4. In extreme poverty, harassed by the importunity of friends in England and the petitions of penniless cavaliers who found their way to Cologne, every design at once known in london through cromwell's spies and through the skill of dr wallace in deciphering his intercepted letters his court so torn by private factions that thurlow reported the confusion to be as great as ever was in the tower of babylon charles nevertheless kept a light heart hyde might tutor him ormond might speak of his affairs as utterly broken Mazarin might deride our misery. His business was to make life as pleasant as he could. Madame de Motteville declares that he bore the ills of poverty and exile with reckless nonchalance, snatching at whatever pleasures came in his way, even those of the most degraded kind. Although Hyde asserts that he betook himself with great cheerfulness to compose his mind to misfortune, and with a marvellous contentedness, prescribed so many hours a day to the study of both the italian and french languages he hunted every day when the weather allowed and at night he tells us himself we dance and play as if we had taken the plate fleet he had a small fiddler that does not play ill on the fiddle and he was eager to obtain the music for new corrents and sarabans and other little dances in the meantime he says we must be content with those that make no difference between a hymn and a coranto. Dancing, then, as always, was his chief delight indoors, but the consideration of the new clothes and the sword, the latter wholly unsatisfactory, which Henry Bennet had forwarded to him, the two beaver hats, six pairs of shoes of the Paris shoemaker, and six more made by Dyke, three pairs black and the others coloured, helped to pass the impracticable hours in august sixteen fifty five he went incognito with his sister mary to the great fair at frankfurt was splendidly entertained by the elector of mentz for three days and at Königstein met christina the wild queen of sweden the atheistical madwoman who had shortly before renounced her crown and who was scandalizing europe with her excesses on another occasion he visited the Count Palatine of Neuberg at Dusseldorf, and probably then acquired the distaste for German women which he afterwards crystallized into the verdict, odds fish, they are all foggy. The absence of sympathy between him and his mother has already been dwelt upon, but an open and long-abiding breach was now caused by her sustained attempt, in violation of many pledges, to secure the conversion of her youngest son henry of gloucester a conversion upon which the catholics built great hopes henry the ninth they said was to repair what henry the eighth had ruined charles when appealed to by hatton and other royalists in paris resolved to frustrate the scheme the struggle was conducted by henrietta with cajolery deceit and extraordinary harshness and continued from the moment that Charles left Paris until the following November, when he wrote letters to his mother and to James, Lord German, and Henry himself, 
which admitted of no dispute, and sent Ormond with instructions to bring the boy away from Paris without delay. Henry left France in December, and in February 1655 was in his sister's safe custody at The Hague, but he was driven thence in virtue of the treaty with Cromwell, and joined the court at Cologne in May. Hyde declares that he had never seen the king so awakened as in this affair. The motives for this energy need not be exalted to the plane of conscience. They probably resided solely in the need of impressing a certainty of his steadfastness to the faith upon the cavaliers in England, whom he would have lost had he been believed to be a consenting party to his brother's conversion. When, however, Henry was once out of France, and he could point to this victory, Charles lost no time in endeavouring to satisfy his Catholic friends by sending Lord Toff to the nuncio to explain and lament the necessity under which he had found himself, and to express his complete readiness to change his own religion if he could thereby secure advantages sufficient to make the step worth his while. All this followed on a letter written to the ministers of the Scotch Kirk some weeks previously, in which he appealed to their memory of his life with them, and bade them to rest assured of his resolve to walk as in the sight of the Most High, though they would recognize that he was compelled to make friends of all sorts of men. Even greater matters called for decision. Ever since the autumn of 1649, a royalist committee had been in existence in England to prepare for a revolt. Toward the beginning of 1654, it was dissolved and succeeded by a more energetic body called the Sealed Knot, which at once grew busy. Encouraged by Hyde and Ormond, the Knot began to organize a widespread insurrection during the spring of 1654, and this conjointly with the movements of Middleton and Glencairn in the Highlands would, it was hoped, shake Cromwell's power to its base. At the same time, the royalist Henshaw came to Paris with a scheme for the assassination of Cromwell. Charles refused to see him, and by the advice of Hyde and Ormond, discouraged any attempt until the sealed knot was prepared to follow it up at once by open insurrection. On the other hand, Lord Jared, Rupert, who had quarrelled with both Charles and Hyde, and Sir Edward Herbert, the keeper of the seals, who was sore at the failure of the attack upon Hyde in 1653, in which he had been prominent, urged the pursuance of the scheme, and did not hesitate to express their opinion of the superiority of James over his brother as a man of action and judgment. This brought matters to a crisis. Charles steadfastly supported Hyde and Ormond, with the result that Rupert was compelled to leave the court, and Herbert to give up the great seal. On May 3rd there was published the famous proclamation in which Charles was made to offer a full pardon, five hundred pounds a year, and a colonelcy to anyone who would kill Cromwell. The absurdity of ascribing it to the king has been fully shown, and internal evidence has fixed it upon Herbert that Hyde and Charles, with Ormond and Nicholas, were perfectly cognizant of later plots, especially that of Sexby in 1655 and 1656, and that the celebrated pamphlet, 
killing no murder, which is only to show the lawfulness and conveniency that he be presently killed, had their entire approval. These things do not admit of question. On the limits of the moral reprobation to be attached to such complicity, we have already expressed our view, and that view is strengthened when we remember that a price had been put upon the capture of Charles himself as a traitor, that Cromwell had sanctioned atrocious cruelty in Ireland, and that at this very time Monk was offering rewards in Scotland for the capture or death of the leaders of the royal forces in the Highlands. Moreover, if accounts of the most circumstantial nature which reached Charles had any foundation, assassination plots were not all on one side, for in May 1657 news was sent from England of his intended murder with names and details of the conspirators. The impatience of the English loyalists now brought disaster upon the cause. In February 1655 they were resolved to rise in many parts of the country, although the sealed knot, in whom alone there is any authority from the king, declared absolutely and sharply against the madness of those people that are resolved to begin. Urgent warnings from Charles and Hyde led to nothing but invectives against the knot and against the king himself for his apathy. At length he was forced by the remonstrances of the over-eager men to dispatch Rochester to command in the north and Wagstaff in the west, while he himself went to Middleburg to be ready for an immediate voyage but there was no call upon Charles's presence in England. In March, a premature revolt at Salisbury was easily suppressed. Other isolated risings in west and north burned out for want of support and coherence, and the result was to settle more firmly the damned Oliver, the beast in the revelations, whom all the kings of the earth do worship. Cromwell's French alliance and his attack upon Spain naturally opened up a new prospect for Charles. The delays, for which Spanish diplomacy was famous, the Spanish method, prevented anything definite until the spring of 1656, when he went incognito to Brussels to confer with the ministers Juan Saldana and Alonso de Cardenas. A draft treaty was then drawn up and ratified in the summer, by which Charles agreed to suspend and, if possible, secure the parliamentary revocation of all penal laws, and to maintain the treaty with the Irish Catholics, in return for a monthly allowance of three thousand crowns to himself and fifteen hundred to James, the opening of the Spanish ports for royalist privateers, and the promise of armed help to recover his kingdom. But there was an immediate condition of far greater import he was to call out all the English and Irish soldiers in the French army to be formed into regiments in the service of Spain. This condition led to a serious family quarrel. The Duke of York had served with much credit under Turenne, to whom he was deeply attached. By an arrangement with Cromwell, who wished to keep the brothers in opposition, Mazarin had offered him the command of the forces in Italy, and James was bitterly disappointed when he received instructions from the king to resign his commission, to join him at once at Bruges, where he had now taken up his residence, and to take the oath to Spain. Through a skilful intrigue of Mazarin, 
James failed to secure even the command of the new regiments, and his ill-humour was completed by a further order to dismiss his confidant, Sir John Barclay, who, under Cromwell's instructions, was inciting him to resistance. In a fit of sullen resentment, James left Flanders to follow his friend to Holland. Charles was deeply incensed at this unimaginable sally, while Cromwell noted with satisfaction that that fire kindled between them will not ask bellows to blow it to keep it burning. Hyde's sagacity saved the situation. He urged that the very excess of James's actions made his reduction to his duty sure, and that no compliance with the duke's weakness should be omitted, so that by it he may be got again to Bruges. Ormond was sent after the runaway, for he was the invariable messenger in family matters requiring firm and tactful handling. On condition that the past should be forgotten, that his household should not be interfered with, and that Barclay should be made a peer, James returned somewhat sulkily to his duty. In May he was in command of the regiments, brave and as little troublesome as any prince can be, while Gloucester served as a volunteer with Caracena, and in June a final reconciliation took place between the brothers, in which Charles was relieved of serious embarrassment by James's promise to hold no further communication with the Queen or Lord German upon public affairs. Other causes of friction arose in the matter of the regiments. What the incident was, which drew the following letter on December 28th from Charles to Don Alonso, is not known, but it is worthy of transcription as evidence of one of the four or five known occasions upon which he allowed anger to disturb his usual easy temper. I have seen your letter to the Chancellor, and am so full of indignation at the affront that is put upon me, that I have scarce patience to write this letter. I send this bearer expressly to let you know, that before I suffer this affront to be upon my regiment, which was never yet offered to any private colonel whatsoever, I will break the regiment a thousand times over. I command you to tell Don Juan this from me. Let me have without delay a positive answer of what I may trust to, for I cannot nor will not any longer be at the charges and trouble I am at. During the negotiations with Spain, curious pieces of by-play had gone on, in which but for Hyde's controlling hand, a fatal mistake might easily have been made. In June, the levellers and other extreme republicans in England, who were Cromwell's most formidable enemies, made proposals to Charles through Sexby, to which, however, he was advised by Langdale not to listen, since they were incapable of carrying them out, and since the king ought not to build the foundations of your councils upon any that have been in blood against your majesty or your royal father. Sexby, moreover, worked hard to induce the Spanish court to give its active assistance to the levellers in the projected insurrection, on the promise of the surrender of Dunkirk, and to Spanish help Langdale had no objection. Strangers, he said, are the most fit instruments for your majesty to act in England withal, and these are not your friends or do not understand England, that will persuade your majesty that strangers will not be welcome to your friends in England. 
to such a suggestion hyde would not of course listen for a moment although he was as anxious as langdale to come to some agreement with spain and although he at once took the steps which resulted in the treaty of sixteen fifty six meanwhile a busy irish priest of indifferent character peter talbot who had acted as the intermediary between sexby and the spanish ministers had been using the occasion to urge charles to enter the catholic church if spain were to help the king should renounce the french faction and become a roman catholic yet so secretly that no living creature should know of it but fuensaldana don alonso the archduke and father talbot the secret should be kept if he wished all his life if he would promise this but not otherwise fuensaldana would have him come to brussels at once and in that case the pope and the king of spain would see that by god's assistance he was restored in six months talbot added in another letter only want of information can alienate a person of your majesty's great wit and judgment from our communion End of section eleven